Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The big game is upon us once again, and just like every year, Kansas City is back in the Super Bowl, but additionally, every year on the Take It Easy podcast, we have to get you set for the most important bet you will make during Super Bowl Sunday. That is, of course, what color Gatorade is going to dunk the winning head coach after the Super Bowl. Now, traditionally, you would suspect that red would be the color to go for. I mean, Kansas City is red, San Francisco's red, they're different variations in colors, but guess what? Kansas City has won two of the last four Super Bowls, no red on the Gatorade color. In fact, red has not been the Gatorade color of choice in any of the previous 22 Super Bowls. Red never comes up on the Super Bowl odds list, so don't fall into the trap this year of thinking red is going to be the color. Instead, the favorite is the yellow-green color Gatorade, which, depending on where you gamble, you can get yellow and green at different colors, but the lemon-lime color of Gatorade is the favorite at plus 150. Orange and red tied at 275, blue at 400, and then at plus 450 we have purple. Now it's important to remember purple because purple was the winning color last year at the Super Bowl. When Kansas City beat Philadelphia, it was purple Gatorade that came through. And that was surprising because it was the first time in 11 years that purple Gatorade had been the Gatorade color of choice to dunk the winning head coach, not since the New York Giants won the Super Bowl in 2012. So it's an interesting conversation here. You could get the the lemon-lime color, perennially the favorite, most common type you're going to find, orange, a strong candidate, but if you're looking for a good value play this year, plus 400 on blue is a good choice, because blue has been the color of choice in three of the previous five Super Bowls. Blue was the Patriots' choice after they won the Super Bowl against the Rams, which again, Patriot blue, Ram blue, you could understand the color choice there. Blue was the color for the Buccaneers when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl. Blue was the color of choice when the Rams won the Super Bowl two years ago in Los Angeles. There's so many different options and so many different colors. Blue at plus 400 is the value play of the year. It is historically the most common color of choice, and even though last year we went with purple, blue is perennially at the top of the list. And last year, blue was the favorite. This year, blue's coming in at a long shot plus 400. I think blue is the play to go with for this year's big game color. Now, here's the fun catch. When you go to Bet Online Sportsbook with the link in the description of this episode and use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, you get a 50% welcome bonus on your original deposit. And if you take that 50% welcome bonus and put it all onto blue to win the Super Bowl, you're not getting plus 400 odds, you're getting plus 600 what you originally would have made. So you could make six times your money by betting on blue to be the color of Gatorade that is chosen when Kansas City wins the big game on Sunday. Was this three and a half minutes of big game analysis? Yes, it was. Was it three and a half minutes of deciding what color is going to be the Gatorade bath at the end of the game? You're damn right. And it was three and a half minutes well spent, and you should take this information, go to Bet Online Sportsbook, and make your picks today. Bet Online, where the game starts. Thank you. 
Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping on into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. It's the whole purpose of this fun and wacky podcasting thing. You get to listen however and whenever it is that you so choose. And we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may be choosing. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. It is time for our NBA Trade Deadline podcast. I am so thrilled to be back here with another wild and wacky NBA Trade Deadline show here with you guys. In the first year that we've done this show, where no All-Stars were traded within 48 hours of the NBA Trade Deadline. I love the Trade Deadline so much. We've, We've joked for years the transaction is sometimes just as big as the game itself. Obviously, when you look at live streams and viewership ratings, like trade deadlines do just as good of ratings as regular season games in a lot of these cases, sometimes even playoff games depending on the sport. Major League Baseball has revolved an entire month of their long calendar around the trade deadline, and lo and behold, basketball has found this one this way to do the same here recently. So the two biggest names that got traded at the deadline this year were former All-Star Pascal Siakam, who got traded like three weeks ago, and OG Ananobi, who, you know, the OG Ananobi for RJ Barrett and Emmanuel Quickly trade kind of was its own unique, interesting swap of players, because I don't really know which team got better or worse at the time, but then we look up and all of a sudden the the New York Knicks went like 14-2 and in the month of... January and you're starting to think oh hey yeah this team is is probably the bestest improvement of any of the rosters at the trade deadline because when all is said and done here and the Knicks made another trade today that we'll talk about in this segment but I just kind of want to just put all of the deals together here for the New York Knicks right off the bat because that was the team that was most active other than Dallas which we'll get to Dallas in a second as well there's essentially five stories I want to cover today I want to cover the Knicks I want to cover Dallas I want to cover the the bad teams who made trades the Pacers and then something funny that happened uh, in one of the trades at the end of the day as well But the first, so five topics today, call it like five bullet points or whatever from the NBA trade deadline for our NBA trade deadline show that, like I said, no all-stars traded within 48 hours of the deadline for the first time in the four years that we've been doing this take it easy podcast thing, uh, going back to 2021 when Vucevic got traded 2022, when they flipped uh, Demonis Sabonis for Tyrese Halliburton. I think there was another trade that year, but I can't remember what it was right now. And then uh, last year, obviously, you had Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant get traded right at the trade deadline, of course. But the the, the two trades that I wanted to focus in on with the, the New York Knicks, who were probably the most active of all the teams when you stop and look at the landscape of the trade deadline, 
combining the two big trades that they made and players that moved around because San Diego State's finest, Malachi Flynn. Malachi Flynn went from originally with the Raptors to the Knicks and now is on the Pistons after all was said and done. But when you look at the, the, the final landscape of those two trades for the New York Knicks, the New York Knicks essentially traded R.J. Barrett, you know, former number three pick in the draft, guy who they paid nine figures on a contract last offseason, probably the best player that got moved by the New York Knicks on the roster. They moved R.J. Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, Quinton Grimes, Evan Fournier, who was kind of salary filler, but still Evan Fournier, Ryan Archidiacono, who surprisingly got traded given that, you know, the Villanova of it all, where all of his Villanova college teammates decided to get together on the New York Knicks between Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Dante DiVincenzo. They they all kind of came together to take over the roster in New York. So Archie Diacono, who happened to be on that champion team, ended up getting pushed out the door in a trade. Ryan Archie Diacono and two second-round picks. Don't forget those two second-round picks. It's key that they have all of their future first-round picks. But they moved R.J. Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, Quentin Grimes, Evan Fournier, Ryan Archie Diacono, and two second-round picks in exchange for O.G. Ananobi, Boyan Bogdanovich, both of whom are now starters on the current New York Knicks as constructed, Alec Burks, and Precious Achua, both of whom are bench players in varying capacities for the New York Knicks. And the players that they kept to build around, in essence, are Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle, the two All-Stars, Josh Hart, who we articulated last year, offense is going to run better through R.J. Barrett, Josh Hart, and Jalen Brunson, kept Josh Hart, kept Dante DiVincenzo, the other Villanova guy, Mitchell Robinson, who's obviously out for an extended period of time, and uh, beloved center Isaiah Hartenstein. Isaiah Hartenstein also got to stick around for the New York Knicks. So they kept those those six pieces intact, shuffled the rest of the pieces, shuffled a couple of starters out the door too, and the final result that they end up with is four brand new players who are in their 10-man rotation, one, maybe two who's a starter, depends on how they, they run the lineup here, I would assume... Bogdanovich and OG Ananobi are going to be starting for them, but you know, maybe maybe they end up choosing a lineup that has Josh Hart and you know D- D- Randall at the five instead of Randall at the four. You know, it's just kind of personal preference on how they put that lineup together. They essentially just flipped six rotation players, or f- they switched four rotation players for four new rotation players at the end of it all. They walk away with Boyan Bogdanovich, OG Ananobi. They're three and four, presumably in the starting lineup, and then Alec Burks off the bench, who in his last game with the Pistons dropped like twenty eight points, and the Pistons won their like seventh game of the season against the Sacramento Kings in Sacramento yesterday. They flipped out Alec Burks, and then they add Precious Achua, which you know the only thing that we've talked about on this podcast with Precious Achua is the fact that the Raptors a couple of years ago just created a, a team that was basically just Fred Van Fleet, Pascal Siakam, and six Precious Achuas and thought that would be good enough to beat Joel Embiid and James Harden in the playoffs. But now Precious Achua, one of the six that the Raptors had on their bench, is now in New York. And I thought that was really interesting because you don't normally see a team that, in the case of the New York Knicks, had spent like 
three years accumulating this type of draft capital and these types of players that they had invested in, it's rare that you see those guys get given up on so quickly in such a small amount of time and the team still be in a position to compete. Because I know the Knicks went 14-2 and, and two in January right after they made the OG Ananobi trade and switched out Emmanuel Quickly and R.J. Barrett for OG Ananobi. Like, they got better when they made the trade, especially like a, a dramatic defensive turnaround. There was a great statistic that they improved 28 points in their defensive rating after making the trade for OG Ananobi. And when they made that trade, defense dramatically improves. Their offense, you know, takes a little step back, but the overall result is we're 14-2 and in the month of January after reinvigorating our roster. To then turn around and a month later make another dramatic shift, and I know Quentin Grimes was kind of unhappy about the role he had on the team, and he was just kind of sitting in the corner and shooting threes, which I know is kind of a cliche in the NBA, but Quentin Grimes literally had the highest percentage of shots that were corner three-pointers of any player in the NBA. Like, when the joke is, oh, he sits in the corner and shoots threes, for Quentin Grimes, that was literally the case because he had the highest percentage of shots taken on the corner three of any player in the NBA this season. So, like, Quentin Grimes legitimately had a gripe about all I do is sit in the corner and shoot threes. But Quentin Grimes was someone who, who you know, two years ago when they were going on that um, that first playoff run when, uh, you know, Trey Young was doing the bow in the garden and all that stuff, like, yeah, they got bounced out in the first round, but, like, these were players who were instrumental to what they were trying to do when they went to the first round of the playoffs. And so what I think is so interesting is that the New York Knicks made the call to essentially flip out four rotation players in exchange for four new rotation players or three rotation players because, you know, who knows what one of the six precious Achuas is going to do for the Toronto, for the New York Knicks, but they essentially flip out four rotation players that they invested years of capital into into three brand new players and, you know... Bogdanovich has had a couple stops around the block as a spot-up shooter. OG Ananobi's the one who has the best chance of becoming an all-star. But OG Ananobi is a set. None of these players that they traded for are the top three on the New York Knicks. And that's the thing that's interesting. They made all of these peripheral moves, moved entire swaths of their team around, but didn't trade any of their top three players. Even though I think R.J. Barrett, when we were talking about the Donovan Mitchell trade like 18 months ago, I think R.J. Barrett was worth like three first-round picks of value at the time, and he wasn't really worth that at the end of it. They essentially just flipped him for a better fit in OG and Anobi, and that was kind of the theme of a lot of the trade deadline. It wasn't dramatic swings by teams at the deadline, but it was a lot of teams making tinkers around the edges or finding better fits for their team. Like, I know uh, the, the, the flip of Dennis Schroeder for Spencer Dinwiddie that I know was getting a lot of joke at the time sounded like one of those trades where it's like, oh, they're getting a better fit for what they're trying to run on offense. But in reality, like, Dennis Schroeder and Spencer Dinwiddie are doing essentially the same things. And then we learned later that Spencer Dinwiddie was, was acquired to get waived. So it didn't really make much of a difference in the end. He, you know, was never going to play for the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors just added, uh, you know, the the Raptors just shed salary with uh, Dennis, with Dennis Schroeder and uh, Thaddeus Young. They just got that money off the books so uh, that they could move Emmanuel quickly into the starting lineup. 
you know, to bring it full circle, Emmanuel quickly was the sixth man on the New York Knicks, was one of the favorites for sixth man of the year. And then when he got brought in by Toronto, the idea is that he's their long-term option at the point guard position. He was coming off the bench when Dennis Schroeder was first there. And now they've moved Dennis Schroeder to make room for Emmanuel quickly. A lot of moves this, this trade deadline were about just making small fits for teams that are trying to figure out how they're going to compete in the not-so-distant future, trying to figure out what the game plan is for them going into the play, or I guess some teams going into the playoffs, but the the top teams in the in the East and West didn't really do anything. Like, the, the, the Timberwolves got Monte Morris, OKC got Gordon Hayward, which is more so just to clear up space for themselves. I mean, OKC can make a run this year, but they essentially said, what if we just shed all of our long-term dollar commitments in Davis Bertans and the other player who I, I forgot is in the deal, but they got rid of Bertans, who's making $18 million a year. They got rid of uh, another player to match salary. They traded Trey Mann and got Gordon Hayward, who they can re-sign, they cannot re-sign, but they have just a ridiculously large amount of flexibility to work with going into the offseason, which I think is very interesting and very spicy to think about. A lot of teams, you know, you had trades like that where the the Timberwolves made a trade, the Thunder made a small trade, Boston traded for a backup center in in Xavier Tillman, and that's about it. That that's about all the trades that the top contender Oh, and the Bucks got Patrick Beverly. Which I don't even know if Patrick. I mean, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But I don't. I don't really think Patrick Beverly's going to be in the rotation once the once the Milwaukee Buck playoff run kind of kicks into full effect. They just kind of were like, "Well, let's see if Pat Bev can can play defense in a way that campaign isn't playing defense for us." It was just it was just kind of one of those things where they were bringing in a better fit. Not a lot of trades from the teams that are the top. The Bucks made a Beverly trade. Boston got a backup center. Minnesota got a backup point guard. Oklahoma City got Gordon Hayward, which I guess classifies as the biggest deal you're going to find around the deadline. But Gordon Hayward is a $30 million player who is probably going to come off the bench in Oklahoma City. I mean, it's it's between Lou Dort and him. And I think Lou Dort might actually win that game. I'm not, not 100% sure on that. But uh, all the teams at the top of the conference didn't do anything. The Knicks, who I think are regarded as not the... Not one of the best three teams in the East, but is probably in that like four to six range of like, if we make it back to the second round, that'll be an incredible accomplishment. We we may have overachieved last year by getting to the second round of the playoffs, but if we get back to the second round of the playoffs, it'll feel like a success again this year, like we're taking a step forward, even if they do inevitably get bounced in the second round by either Boston or Milwaukee. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray Right through the very heart of it 
All right. Let's talk about topic number two that I wanted to bring up here today. The Dallas Mavericks. Not sure if the Dallas Mavericks are being talked about as much around the NBA circles. I mean, we're recording this at 1230 West Coast time. So, like, this is the immediate aftermath of the trade deadline. I'm not really plugged into what a lot of other people are talking about when it comes to the deadline. But the thing that piqued my interest was the Dallas Mavericks being active at the deadline for the second year in a row after last year they traded for Kyrie Irving. But this year, in a deadline that, like I said, all-stars or former all-stars, none of them got traded within 48 hours of the deadline, which doesn't really change the landscape of the NBA in any meaningful fashion. Dallas was the closest thing to super active at the deadline because they were one of the few teams that actually gave up a future first-round pick and a player that actually has value in a trade. Like, when Dallas got Grant Williams this offseason, it was seen as, like, a relatively big deal. And this was when Boston was shaking up the roster by moving out Williams, moving out Marcus Smart. Uh, Grant Williams was getting that benefactor that people get when a team makes a long playoff run and you get to see their face repeatedly in the playoffs. Sometimes people, like, increase their trade value because they're seeing the face over and over again or people see the value of the person because their face is on your screen for two consecutive weeks and there's no other teams that are getting that attention. I know this happened with some of the guys on the Warriors, like uh, Nick Young, like uh, JaVale McGee, uh, Leandro Barbosa during that championship run, even Iguodala at the end with the Warriors. This happened with uh, Jared Vanderbilt last year. Everyone was telling me how much Jared Vanderbilt was amazing. And and Austin Reeves, remember people were saying Austin Reeves is going to get $100 million in free agency, and that offer never came. He got like $56 million. But uh, Grant Williams, because of like him fighting with Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Butler looking up and saying, oh, you poked the bear, watch this, I'm going to score eight points in a row in your face and hit the, the too small on you. Like After Grant Williams was beefing back and forth with Jimmy Butler and it looked like Boston was the best team left in the playoffs for a good three and a half weeks, after watching all of that happen, Grant Williams and Marcus Smart getting moved out of Boston felt like, oh my god, Boston is making this dramatic change in their organization and what is happening here. And then we look up five months later and it's like, oh, Marcus Smart is injured and playing on a last place team and he's a forgotten name in the league and uh, Grant Williams is going to, to Dallas and doesn't fit in Dallas, so now they're just going to pawn him off to the Hornets, and now he gets to go to the purgatory that Terry Rozier went to. By the way, another name, Terry Rozier, that was one of those guys who made a deep playoff run in Boston and then got to the Hornets, and it was like, oh, the Hornets have their franchise cornerstone to follow Kemba Walker. And Terry Rozier was just never that with Charlotte, like never as good in Charlotte as he was during that weird playoff run where he was the second best player or maybe even the best player on a team that came within one game of making it to the NBA Finals in 2018. I say all of, and by the way, Terry Rozier got traded to the Miami Heat, and the Miami Heat seemed to be like relatively happier with Terry Rozier than Kyle Lowry by margins of an iota. It's just a, a, a change of scenery type of trade. I bring all of this up to say Dallas, at the end of the trade deadline, traded away. Grant Williams, Rashawn Holmes, who was kind of salary filler, 
But they did. But when they got Rashawn Holmes from the Kings last year on the on NBA draft day, they got an additional first round pick for him. So he was salary filler at the time. He'll be salary filler again here. And they they you know give up the draft some of the compensation they got in exchange. They give up Grant Williams, Rashawn Holmes, Seth Curry, a first round pick, and at least one second round pick. And what they get back is. P.J. Washington and Daniel Gafford, which is, you know, Daniel Gafford is a true center for them, and he might end up starting depending how they feel about Derek Lively when the playoffs run around, but you have essentially a new number three in P.J. Washington and a backup center. Or a sixth man, depending on how you want to view Daniel Gafford and and what he's done in Washington to kind of rebuild his career. They got a new number three in an offense that runs more primarily through two players than any offense in the league and a backup center. And I don't say that to be like, oh, what is Dallas doing or anything? I'm just like, it was such an interesting decision for Dallas to make such dramatic switches. I mean, they're a play-in team for all intents and purposes, and they've already squandered a lot of their ability to build around Luka Doncic so much so that they traded for Kyrie Irving out of a level of desperation last year like when the deadline rolled around what we talked about over and over again is teams trading for Kyrie Irving are in a bit of desperation mode because they have squandered assets in some place and they have to take on Kyrie Irving who comes with all the Kyrie Irving stuff that we have talked about time and time again and by the way this was after this was he when he got traded to Dallas last year. This was like less than three months after the whole, uh, what was the God? What was the name of the film that um oh from Hebrews to word for black people that I'm not gonna say from Hebrews to blank and him retweeting that and all the anti-Semitism stuff and his refusal to apologize for weeks and the indefinite suspension. This was all within three months of that, that he got traded to Dallas last year. And the reason Dallas got him at a relative premium, or I'm sorry, at a relative discount, trading away Spencer Dinwiddie, Dorian Finney-Smith, and a first-round pick, the reason they got him at the deal that they got him at was they didn't really have any other recourse for improvement. They had already given up so many draft picks for Porzingis, and that didn't work out. And then they got rid of Porzingis at a value, giving him up for for Bertans and Dinwiddie. And then they flipped Dinwiddie as the package to try and get Kyrie. Like, they had already tried so many options before, and it just wasn't working. They had squandered so many draft picks, so much free agency dollars. They let Jalen Brunson walk out the door and... After letting Jalen Brunson walk and getting nothing in return, after trading Porzingis for 50 cents on the dollar, after giving up two first-round picks and players to get him in the first place, they went after Kyrie Irving, came back this year and said, okay, you know, we have our two stars in place, we know how our offense is going to get run, here's our number 10 pick, Derek Lively, here's our handful of role players that we're, we're just going to bring in new names and see if new names can spice it up. The Grant Williams thing didn't work. And now again, eight months later, they're essentially saying, let's try and bring in new names again. We, we, we brought in our rookies. We brought in new names. Let's try again and just bring in some new names and shake it up a little bit. And uh, now at the end of the day, 
I'm looking up at Dallas and thinking to myself, uh, I don't really know what direction this is going. I don't really know if giving up more draft capital into your future, mortgaging your future more for a number three in P.J. Washington, who, yes, was a starter for the Hornets, but also the Hornets weren't very good. And yes, he got a second contract from the Hornets and he had some value, but I don't know if I would have given up a first round pick to make that happen. Grant Williams and a first round pick, granted, because they gave up more draft capital to sign and trade Grant Williams in the first place. Remember when they got Grant Williams, he was a restricted free agent in in Boston. And so they had to trade, I believe it was a a couple second round picks to get Grant Williams in the first place. And, And, you know, a team already short on draft picks had to give up more draft capital to package Grant Williams. Let's see. Okay, they traded a pick swap and two seconds and Reggie Bullock. So if you add that into the trade and now Grant Williams is having to be packaged with more draft capital in order to get P.J. Washington, you're essentially looking at Dallas in the span of eight months trading a first-round pick swap, an additional first-round pick, three second-round picks and Seth Curry for P.J. Washington. And that's just an awful business deal. Awful business deal. They gave up a first-round pick, a pick swap, Seth Curry, who, you know, is is not the same Seth Curry that he once was, but they gave up a player, a first-round pick, a a pick swap, and at least three second-round picks to add P.J. Washington. And that's just such a bad business deal for a team that was already short on draft capital. They were already short on draft capital because of everything they gave up to get Porzingis in the first place and had to give up future picks to acquire Kyrie Irving and now are giving up another first round pick. Granted, I assume it'll have protections on it that keep it from being in the lottery, but the pick, even if the pick doesn't matter as much, they don't have the same flexibility in the future to go bring in a player better than Kyrie Irving to pair with Luka Doncic. And so now they're kind of looking around and they're like, ah, shit, this is this is what we're boxed into for the next two years. And, and Luka's going to be there beyond this year and next year, so it's not like they have to worry about Luka not being there, but they just don't have any recourse to get better. Because even the little bits and pieces that they had to try and improve, they've pissed it away. Like I said, they've now given up, you know, Reggie Bullock, Seth Curry, you could call those salary fillers or whatever, Reggie Bullock, Seth Curry, a first-round pick, a first-round pick swap, and at least three second-round picks, and all they have to show for it is... P.J. Washington. And P.J. Washington is the number three on this team, most likely. I mean, depending on how you feel about Lively and Josh Green as young pieces that'll develop, like, P.J. Washington has to be the number three on this team coming in the door, and that's just not a... I'm sorry, you know, they also have Tim Hardaway Jr., so I guess maybe Tim Hardaway Jr. is the number three. P.J. Washington gotta be, like, an important part of this team 
because they just gave up a shit ton to get him in the first place. So, like, you know, maybe they'll convince a free agent to come sign with them again this offseason like they did Grant Williams, but if the last one was any indication for what the next one's going to look like, I don't think this is going to go the way that Dallas thinks it's going to go. So that's kind of whack in their case. I mentioned Charlotte a second ago, and that brings me to the third point that I wanted to mention here on the Trade Deadline Show, and that's just that Pistons and the Hornets, who, you know, suck (laughs) best nicest way I can phrase it they suck uh the Pistons and the Hornets they made the call to trade deadline to just get some new pieces in just shake up the cooks in the kitchen did they get better cooks in the kitchen Eh, probably not probably not but they just changed up the names that were in the door seemed to just kind of be the theme here Um, If I look at the Pistons' depth chart and compare it to what it was at the start of the season, the players who are still on the team who were there at the start of the year are essentially their starting five. It's Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Asar Thompson, Isaiah Stewart, and Jalen Duran. The rest of the team is kind of just shaking up the cooks in the kitchen. They got Mike Muscala, they got Quentin Grimes, they got Shake Milton, they got Sasser, they got Fournier, they got Malachi Flynn, they got uh, the boy Fontecchio, the Italian friend from uh, from the Utah Jazz. They got Fontecchio in the door. They've tried. They've tried so many different things. They're just shaking up the cooks in the kitchen. And the only pieces that are worth a damn to keep around are Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Asar Thompson, Jalen Duran and Isaiah Stewart, who they probably would have traded if he hadn't gotten hurt. There's also a sixth name in there that I forgot to mention, and that is James Wiseman, former number two overall pick that was supposed to be the foundation of the Warriors' light years ahead, two timeline plans. And for those who weren't watching, the Detroit Pistons beat the Sacramento Kings on Wednesday night in the middle of Super Bowl week, which... You know, why would you? But uh, for the Pistons, Cade Cunningham was out. Boyan Bogdanovich was out. They had eight total players. Because remember, they traded Monte Morris earlier in the day. They had eight total players play in the game. They had nine who were active. The one who didn't play? James Wiseman. Even without Cade Cunningham, Boyan Bogdanovich, Mark, uh, Monte Morris, all those players out, you know who still didn't get into the lineup? James Wiseman. Even as Killian Hayes was about to get waived within 24 hours, even as Joe Harris was about to get waived within 24 hours, even after they traded... Marvin Bagley and Isaiah Livers to the Washington Wizards. Even after all of that, again, no Cade Cunningham, no Boyan Bogdanovich, no Monte Morris, no Killian Hayes on the team after 24 hours. Why would they play him? What reason did they have invested in him? Joe Harris played. He's not on the team within 24 hours. Traded Marvin Bagley, traded Isaiah Livers. After all of that, James Wiseman still could not find the floor for the goddamn Detroit Pistons. Chef's kiss, Golden State Warriors, 
one of the worst of the worst draft busts any of us have ever seen. Chef's kiss to you. Let's talk about the Philadelphia 76ers because you may have mentioned, you may have heard me mention earlier when we were talking about teams who were competing for the championship, not trading for any big name player. When I mentioned that, like, Minnesota got a backup point guard, Milwaukee flipped campaign for Patrick Beverly, which is just kind of a flavor of the month kind of choice. You know, maybe one of those guys will play once the playoffs are all around. Um, Oklahoma City got Gordon Hayward, which was, I guess, a relatively big move, but he might well, he might be a bench player on that team. Like, they may opt to start Lou Dort over him. The Boston Celtics got a backup point guard, or sorry, a backup center, getting Xavier Tillman for two second-round picks. Like, there, there wasn't really a whole lot going on for the contending teams. Meanwhile, the Philadelphia 76ers traded for Buddy Heald. Which is, a, like, I'll admit, a relatively big trade. They they got Buddy Heald in exchange for Marcus Morris, Furkan Korkmaz, and three second-round picks. Put a pin in the Marcus Morris stuff. We're going to come back to that as point five. This is point four. Point five is Marcus Morris. We're going to put a pin in that right now. But again, Marcus Morris goes from Indiana to... The are from the 76ers to Indiana. Buddy Heald goes from Indiana to the 76ers. Buddy Heald will be a starter on the 76ers who are trying to win the championship this year, specifically this this year. The pieces that they got from the James Harden trade are all on expiring contracts. So then they flipped some of those expiring contracts and draft picks to add a a shooting threat from the perimeter in Buddy Heald, who will pair relatively nicely alongside. Therese Maxey uh, and and the 76ers with uh, Batum and all those guys who are, you know, kind of mixing and matching in the backcourt for them. But I didn't mention the 76ers because Joel Embiid got a torn meniscus. And I know they're trying to play it like Joel Embiid's going to be back at some point in the relatively near future, but that man got a torn meniscus. Torn meniscus in February does not equal team contending for a championship in April and May math math not lining up there and so I'm just kind of like existing as if the Philadelphia 76ers have like a little like like put a pin in them for now 
It's like the, the, the tower hasn't completely collapsed, but we're just kind of putting a pin in it and re, re we're, we're going to check in with them in, in April. Because one of the things that's interesting about the 76ers is that the 76ers right now are in a position where they have almost all of their players except for Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid, and I think a couple of second-round picks are on expiring contracts at the end of the season. Morris was on an expiring contract. Batum was on an expiring contract. Tobias Harris is on an expiring contract. Like, everyone except Maxey, Embiid, and some second-round picks are on expiring contracts at the end of this season. They have so much flexibility with what they can do this offseason to try and build around Embiid and build around Tyrese Maxey. However, they also kind of need to win right now because Joel Embiid's kind of reached that age where big man is no longer guaranteed to be healthy during all times of the season. And so they kind of are playing the interesting game right now where they don't know if they have a chance to win a championship this year because they don't know what's going to happen with Joel Embiid. They're saying it like Embiid's going to be back. That man got a torn meniscus. Torn meniscus. He would be out for the season if the 76ers didn't have so much invested in Joel Embiid's success. There's a great phrase that like after year nine in the league, your health is no longer a guarantee. We're talking about a player who last I checked is in year 11 in the league. No, he was the 2014 class. This is year 10 for Embiid now. And by the way, he missed the first two years of his career because of foot and knee injuries. And now you got another knee injury that is probably going to keep him out for the rest of the regular season. And I'm looking up and I'm like, I just kind of got to put a pin in it because I don't know how much this Buddy Heald trade is going to make a difference if they don't got Joel Embiid for a significant portion of this playoff run. So, like, what is Buddy Heald going to do? Buddy Heald, who I believe is is on an expiring contract as well. If I double-check, I think Buddy Heald might be on an expiring contract at the end of this season for the 76ers as well. Yeah, he, you know, he's on an expiring contract too. So, so you know, this is, a, this is a trade for right now type of run by giving up two players who were on the way out and three second-round picks. They were kind of like, yeah, this is a trade for this year to add Buddy Heald, getting Buddy for essentially, you know, three second-round picks. And that I don't know if that's going to help. I just simply don't know what's going to happen with Joel Embiid. So anything that feels like it matters for them competing for a championship, it seems like doesn't actually matter because Joel Embiid has a torn meniscus, which we don't talk enough about the fact that he has a torn meniscus. And the Sixers are trying to do everything they can to make sure that this torn meniscus is somehow ready to be played when the season rolls around. Or when the postseason rolls around in April. When they might be the 5 or the 6 seed in the Eastern Conference. The last thing I wanted to talk about today on the trade deadline show, this is the last point I wanted to bring up here, is Marcus Morris. Marcus Morris got traded... From the 76ers to the Pacers as salary filler for Buddy Heald. He then got traded as salary filler again, like less than two hours later, to the San Antonio Spurs in exchange for Doug McDermott. And uh, the Pacers sent one of those three second round picks that they got from the deal from the Sixers. They sent one of those three seconds to the 
Spurs to get Doug McDermott. So when all was said and done, the Pacers ended up trading Buddy Heald for Doug McDermott, Furkan Korkmaz, and two second-round picks, and then also got Corey Joseph from the Warriors, which is kind of like whatever, they just needed another backup point guard if... Halliburton is going to be playing only 20 minutes a game. They can't just totally lean on TJ McConnell as their only backup point guard option and then playing Benedict Matherin as the de facto point guard. They kind of just wanted a true point guard option off the bench if Halliburton's going to be out for a few games. So the Pacers moved Marcus Morris to the Spurs. You may remember that we did a book on the San Antonio Spurs called The Spurs Dynasty. It's out wherever you get books. You can, uh, you know, if you're interested check it out. But one of the great stories in the fall of the Spurs dynasty is that during the 2019 free a- or the 20 yeah, the 2019 free agency, the Spurs had a deal in place to sign Marcus Morris to a 2-year contract. This was uh this was after he had left the Celtics. So maybe it was 2018, maybe it was the summer of 18. No, it was the summer of 19. It was after he left the Celtics. Marcus Morris was a free agent. He signed a deal verbally with the Spurs, backed out of the deal, and went to the New York Knicks. Meanwhile, before that happened, in the time between his verbal commitment and him backing out to sign with the Knicks, San Antonio traded Davis Bertans to the Wizards to create the cap space that would allow them to sign Marcus Morris. And then Marcus Morris bailed on them and went to the New York Knicks. And then later he got traded to the Clippers and from the Clippers to the Sixers and yada, yada, yada. It's been a four-year journey of Marcus Morris jumping from playoff team to playoff team, blah, blah, blah. But now Marcus Morris is back on the San Antonio Spurs. And in the deal, Woj or Shams or whoever it was, or Pat Beverly, because I know Pat Beverly broke the news of his own trade, but Woj or Shams put in the tweet... Marcus Morris is likely to be bought out by San Antonio. And Greg Popovich and San Antonio, five years later, have a chance to do something incredibly, incredibly fucking petty. Incredibly, incredibly petty. They have a chance to just tell Marcus Morris to go home. They're not going to put him on a playoff team. They're not going to let him buy out his contract. Just give him the fuck you because he screwed over San Antonio back in 2019 by agreeing to go there, backing out of going there, and leaving San Antonio with neither Davis Bertans nor Marcus Morris at the end of it all. And if they wanted to be incredibly petty, they would just sit on Marcus Morris. Sit on Marcus Morris. Don't let him go to a playoff team. Don't even play him either in San Antonio. Like, don't even invite him into the locker room. Just say, we are acquiring you for the second round pick. We value the second round pick more than you. Go home. You're not going to get bought out. Absolutely petty king. If San Antonio chooses to do that. But I don't think San Antonio is going to do that because I think San Antonio is either A, nice... Or B, could save some money by agreeing to the buyout. That's kind of the terms of the buyout. Like, if you give back 40% of your salary, we'll let you leave if you so choose. But maybe you could just take all the money and sit 
because we don't have any use for you. But they could be absolutely petty kings if they wanted to. I don't think they're going to, but they have the opportunity to be absolutely petty kings. To get back Marcus Morris after four and a half years ago, he screwed them over and, and potentially set them back a year trying to compete in the window of still having LaMarcus Aldridge and DeJounte Murray and DeMar DeRozan and trying to pivot off of having Kawhi Leonard. Which, if you want more details about how all of that went down, again, we have a book. It's really cool. You guys should check it out. It's the fall. Uh, it's the Spurs Dynasty, a historical account of the greatest dynasty in North American pro sports. Buy it wherever you get books. And, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast trade deadline special. It's been a special time here with all of you. Thank you for stopping in. I know there was no Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving trade like there was last year, but I know I sure had a grand old time getting to laugh and have fun with all of you here today. Uh, We will chat with you again later this week for our Super Bowl setup with uh, Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo, and then Super Bowl Sunday is going to come, and then we're going to have an NFL Monday right afterwards. But in the meantime, just scroll through some old episodes that we have. Find something you like. I'm sure in our hundreds and hundreds of episode library, some of these evergreen podcasts will pique your interest. And also in the meantime, we ask that you take it easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.